It's Tuesday, May 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the country continues to reopen for business, one of the hardest-hit industries will still have a difficult time recovering. Restaurants will see a long, slow ramp-up back to the way things were. Real-time industry data is showing that while people are starting to get out there, restaurants are only seeing a fraction of the business they used to have, partly due to capacity limits for social distancing. The estimates are still dire as to whether some businesses can remain open after the comeback. Jordan Weissman, senior economics reporter at Slate, joins us for more. Next, we'll tell you about the pirates of the highway. Thieves are stealing big trailers, oftentimes without even knowing what's in them, hoping for a big score. In one case, two men made off with $30,000 of canned corn. The operations in stealing these trailers range from getting lucky and picking up an unattended trailer to elaborate schemes in paying off low-level workers for tips on cargo and location. Dylan Taylor Lehman, writer at Narratively, joins us for how these highway pirates are making off with precious cargo. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's a fraction of our, our normal restaurant yeah. revenue, and there'll be cars lined up out front to, to pick up their brunches, but um, it's really sad to see the chairs piled up and the tables pulled away and, and no one dining, no one bellied up to, uh, to the bar. Joining us now is Jordan Weissman, senior economics writer at Slate. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me on wanted to talk about restaurants and how they're going to be faring as states are reopening. I think all 50 states now are starting to reopen in some capacity. The restaurant scene is varying, obviously, state by state. But the restaurant industry, really one of the hardest hit industries in this whole coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of restaurants who have managed to stay open just doing delivery and takeout. But there's a ton of other restaurants who have closed throughout this and might never reopen. And as we're seeing some states reopening, we're getting some headlines and some good shots of people actually making it out to restaurants, but it could be a little misleading. We get a lot of real-time data from the industry, from places like Open Table and other places that do analysis on restaurants and people eating out. And the numbers aren't all really there just yet. So Jordan, tell us a little bit about what's going on with restaurants. You know, the first thing I want to say is, before we even get into the numbers, some people ask me, why do we care so much about restaurants specifically, right? A lot of different small businesses are hurting right now. Why is it such a big deal how the food industry is doing? And one very simple and not technical answer to that is people like to eat out. Like restaurants are a huge part of just like the cultural fabric of cities and towns. And they're a part of what makes going out on a weekend fun. People care about these. They have a deep emotional attachment to restaurants. But also there are economic reasons to care about this industry. It's a huge employer. There are more than 600,000 full service restaurants in the country that have been essentially shut down in some capacity or another, partially or entirely because of this crisis. There are millions of jobs attached to them. And the more of these businesses that go bust, that don't make it through this crisis or its immediate aftermath, the longer it's going to take for the whole economy to heal. The more small businesses that disappear and can't bring their workers back, the longer it's going to take us to kind of crawl out of this hole we've ended up in. So it's important how quickly restaurants can recover. And at the same time, you have to balance their concern for their business with public health issues, right? 
So what we're seeing is that, yeah, there are all these stories about how in Georgia restaurants in some places are getting packed again and how you know in Texas you're seeing people show up at diners and stuff. But if you actually look at the numbers, they're not quite as encouraging. You mentioned Open Table, which is actually a surprisingly useful data source right now because they track obviously reservations made on their platform, but they also track walk-in diners and people who make phone reservations because people who run restaurants use the software for a bunch of different tasks. And they'll tell you that right now, the number of diners at restaurants in places like Georgia are still down about 80%. In Florida, same thing. In Oklahoma, which is doing as well as anyone, it's closer to 60%. And you can look at other data sources too. There's credit card activity data that suggests that 20 to 25% of restaurants are entirely closed in places like Texas and Alabama and Arizona, which there's been a lot of fanfare about how these states are reopening. Again, that's a fifth to a quarter of restaurants that are not doing any business at all, not even doing takeout. Again, there's this one company called Toast, which is essentially a point of sales software provider. You know, when you go and swipe your credit card at a restaurant, they are the ones who are recording your sale or recording what was charged on your check. According to their data, Total spending year over year at the 12 early bird states, as I refer to them in my piece, are still down 44%. Again, total spending at restaurants is down 44% year over year in states that have reopened early. It's gradually recovering, but those are not the kind of numbers that are going to sustain a business. If that continues, a lot of them are not going to survive the reopening. And a big part of that, obviously, is the social distancing measures that are put in place. You know, restaurant is not going to be able to fill to capacity anytime soon. Just looking at kind of where all the states stand right now, there's a handful of states that are letting restaurants open at 50% capacity, but the vast majority of them are either 25 or 33% capacity is what you can have in there. So a lot of times these restaurants, depending on how many covers they have throughout the night or throughout the day, they're barely meeting the expectations that they need to keep the restaurant open and to make any type of profit there. So these capacity limits are going to be hurting them for some time to come, leading it's going to be a long, slow recovery for them because they're not going to be able to hit that speed very quickly. A restaurant can handle having half to three quarters of its tables empty on a Monday night. It cannot handle it if that's every Friday, Saturday and Sunday. They will not survive that way. It's that clear and simple. And so the question is, how long will these social distancing measures have to stay in place for the sake of public health? My guess is probably for a while, even in places where the number of infections is fairly low. People are nervous. They want these protections in place, and so do the local officials. And then second is, what else can they do to make money? One option that's promising is to expand the amount of outdoor seating, at least for the summer. That seems to be what I'm told has happened in South Carolina, which is probably having one of the quickest recoveries right now. Restaurants in Charleston are being given a lot of sidewalk space, and that's allowed them to start making up business a little bit quicker. But to me, it seems pretty obvious that there are going to have to be some longer-term support programs from the government in order to make help these businesses survive or at least tread water yeah. until things get a little bit more favorable for them. So far, what the data is showing is that is kind of a good news, bad news scenario. It's good news that the states are reopening their restaurants. People are getting out there, although not to the capacity that we wanted to just yet. But on the flip side, the bad news is that how long can these restaurants be sustainable that way. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't seem that they will be able to survive. So it's this tough balance yeah. that needs to happen. I, I would even go a little further. I'd say part of the good news here is also that 
it doesn't seem like people are being too irresponsible, right? We've seen all those pictures of, and I guess, you know, videos of like crowds running back to brunch or whatever, but it doesn't seem like that's the norm. Places are not packed to capacity. Businesses and diners are gradually returning to the dinner table. And so that's not a bad thing if you're worried about public health. Just the question is, since everyone is worried about public health, nobody wants to take crazy risks. How do we make sure that these vital businesses that we all love and cherish don't just get wiped out? Jordan Weissman, senior economics writer at Slate. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. So in one of their otherwise typical scouting operations, they saw an unattended trailer, just as we had described at a truck stop, hooked up to it and drove away and ended up being, I don't know if it was 18,000 cans of corn or something like that. But just, yeah, it was a trailer full of canned corn intended for a food bank. Joining us now was Dylan Taylor Lehman, staff writer at Narratively. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. I saw your story called The Pirates of the Highways, and it looked like a fun read. In my head right away, I started thinking part Fast and the Furious, part Storage Wars, only in the fact that the story is about people who steal truck trailers, these big 18-wheeler truck loads, and it's kind of this crapshoot because they don't really know what's inside of it until they get away with it and open it and then try to sell the contents. And then it's not so much like Fast and the Furious where there's high-speed cars doing the thefts on the road. It's a little different than that, but these are the things that were swirling around in my head. So Dylan, I wanted to bring you on and talk a little bit about this. This has been an ongoing problem forever, really, but you had a few stories about how this is going on, and it was just an interesting look into all this. So start us off, Dylan. Tell us about some of these highway pirates. Just to say, I don't want to discount the possibility that there are some really cool high-tech action movie style heists, because I'm sure they are, but just by and large, it's a little bit more low-key than that. And so, yeah, and and the research I did and some of the detectives and industry people I talked to, it seems like the most common trailer theft is just as you described, people will see an unattended trailer in a, a parking lot, truck stop, whatever, and just link up to it and drive away and then kind of figure out what's in there later. And talking to a long haul trucker, he mentioned that people who know what they're doing, especially if you have a team going, I mean, you can hook up and leave within a matter of two minutes, literally. So if you know what you're doing and know how to kind of make those disappear, you know, it seems like the payoff can be pretty substantial. So the first major question is, why would a trailer full of goods, whether we'll get to it later, whether it's canned corn or cell phones or other electronics, why would it be left unattended? As thievery increases, this is kind of a practice that I think the industry is starting to discourage, if not clamp down on entirely. But people, especially in smaller areas, will leave trailers unattended if they're driving their cab home for the weekend or if they're getting it serviced or if they have another load takes precedence. So it's not really that out of the ordinary from what I understand to in an otherwise secure, trustworthy place, just leave your trailer and then come pick it up when you're ready to make that haul. So I think it's just kind of a practice out of convenience, but I think people are starting to realize that there may be some consequences there. And there are some other more organized ways that this is happening, and we'll get to those in a minute, but specifically talking about these trailers that are left maybe on the side of the road or at a a truck stop or something, you started off your article with a story about an uncle and nephew duo who did this some years ago, 
And their big haul ended up being a whole truck worth of green giant canned corn. That's why I kind of chuckled about it and said it was part storage wars. They didn't know what it was until they got away with it. I guess their haul was about $30,000. So tell us quickly about that story and kind of what happened to them. Understanding that somebody stole $30,000 worth of canned corn was a pretty appealing story to look into when I was researching some relatively recent cargo thefts. That happened in 2013. And as you mentioned, it was an uncle and a nephew who had been essentially jacking trailers for the past 10 years and various law enforcement agencies were on to them. And so in one of their otherwise typical scouting operations, they saw an unattended trailer, just as we had described at a truck stop, hooked up to it and drove away and ended up being, I don't know if it was 18,000 cans of corn or something like that. (laughs) But just, yeah, it was a trailer full of canned corn intended for a food bank. You know, and and from what I understand that that may seem like uh, you kind of got the short end of the stick there stealing canned corn, but it turns out that food, pet food, and other relatively small-scale items are actually a little easier to move in these networks, the black market networks. So something untraceable like that and relatively inexpensive can still yield some pretty handsome returns. Yeah, even the trailer, if it had been completely empty or something, would have been worth it like $7,500 to them if they wanted to sell it off somehow. The police report noted definitely the value of the trailer and a few miscellaneous other bits of equipment that were there. I mean, this happens so often that there's actually police forces, task forces that are designed to handle these things. In 2015, I like this, there was a a string of uh, snack nut heists where there was about 31 heists costing carriers more than $5 million. So this is kind of happening throughout the years, obviously, but still happening with some regularity. We all, you know, all know the unfortunate high prices of pistachios and cashews. So not only is that perhaps a viable target to begin with, but the reason why there was that surge in nut thievery was because there was droughts and various shortages that did make them, you know, an even more valuable commodity than normal. And so rings of thieves, obviously attuned to the markets were able to coordinate thefts of items that were pretty valuable at that point in time. So that uncle and nephew duo that stole the $30,000 worth of canned corn, the FBI was kind of hot on their trail. They had been doing this for some time. They were caught and all. What kind of time did they face for this? From what I understand, you're crossing state lines. So that's, you know, a much more serious crime, which is why the FBI and U.S. Marshals get involved. I suppose the ringleader who used to be a professional trucker himself, which is, I guess, probably how he figured out how to make all this happen. He ended up getting about 10 years and he still is in prison. And his nephew and his son, who were also involved, were sentenced to, I think, around four and a half years and have since been released. But they also included in these indictments were they're implicated in a number of other heists. So it all kind of compounded together. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other ways these truck heists happen. A lot of times they're inside jobs. It might be a guy who works at the shipping yard or something. You throw him a little bribe, a few hundred bucks to let you know where the shipment might be, something like that. That way you can follow that truck driver, follow the trailer, and then go from there. So tell us kind of how it's being done uh, right now. And There's also people looking up on message boards and doing a little detective work for themselves. This information was thanks to a guy who works for a major logistics firm coordinating all this shipping. And as you can probably imagine, oftentimes when they're shipping truckloads full of cell phones or computer equipment or medicine or something very valuable, they certainly make a point to obscure what's actually inside. 
And so in those instances, as you mentioned, there is an, an inside man or somebody who has knowledge of where those specific trailers and where they're heading. And so, yeah, they'll coordinate in that way. Or if you're good at talking your way into things, you can forge paperwork and charm your way into picking up loads that were intended for other people by pretending to be those people. So yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of creative and fairly complex ways to steal trailers in addition to just hooking up with them and dragging them away. And there's a lot of money at stake throughout all of this. You wrote about a 12-member Louisville-based outfit that were doing these cargo thievery things across 10 states. I guess in the three or four years that they were operating, they stole up to $30 million worth of cargo. And what they were doing, they were following drivers until they might have stopped and took a break or something like that. And then they'd hijack the truck at that point. And that's led to changes in the industry. I guess they say, you know, if you pick up a load, you got to drive at least 200 miles. It's about four or five hours or so before stopping to deter somebody that might be following you. Certainly tracking GPS devices on trailers or much more robust locking mechanisms and various other practices. Like when you do have to leave a trailer, a lot of carriers will require that you do that in a registered location secured by a number of fences or even backing your trailer up against a wall so nobody can open the door. And it seems fairly obvious that all trailers should be outfitted with tracking equipment. But as somebody I was talking to explained, you know, there are tens of millions of trailers out there. And so for these mega carriers to retrofit all of them with security devices and GPS, that's just not possible or not financially viable. So yeah, there are still going to be some vulnerabilities for sure. The most recent example that you mentioned in your article happened just three days after Christmas this past year in 2019. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the guys ended up getting caught, but I think they were stealing from like a military family or something like that. One of the guys worked for a moving company who had coordinated a transnational movement of three military families. So it was three families worth of belongings in these trucks. The guy at the moving company knew that that was there and so drove off with it. And for better or worse, I guess, he ended up stashing a lot of the goods in his own house. So once they kind of figured out who it was and where he had gone, you know, his entire house was filled with these other people's belongings. And I don't know if he was arrested while riding a motorcycle that was taken from the truck or that was also in the possession. But that was another fairly obvious that this guy and his accomplice were involved with stealing this entire trailer. Yeah. When they finally caught up to him, they had a bunch of boxes, electronics, bikes, things like that. And yeah, a motorcycle that, that they were taking from yeah. the family. So yeah, no, it's just an interesting look into what happens and how these kind of truck thefts are happening. These trailer thefts are happening. There's a lot of other little nuggets in the story that, that are pretty fun to go through and read. So I suggest everybody check out Dylan's article there. For anybody who's interested in checking out some of the other stuff I've written, both for Narratively and other publications, please feel free to check out my blog at theyawningchasm.com. And I'd also like to just give a heads up that I have a book coming out on June 9th, which is called Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family. And that is about the world's foremost micronation, which is an a country that was founded on an old naval fort in the middle of the North Sea and just the five plus decades of piracy and adventures and just overall madness that's taken place in the name of this tiny country. So that'll be out on June 9th, published by Diversion Press. 
Dylan Taylor Lehman, writer at Narratively. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.